Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. I'm excited because I'm going to a restaurant tonight for the first time since February. I'm eating out to help out on Rish's instructions. Our interviewee today is Louise Bell, who will give us an insight into how she morphed from top show rider into Grand Prix dressage competitor and just why she loves her new sport so much. It's like a drug, isn't it? It really is. Anybody that has anything to do with dressage, I never thought it could be as exciting as it is. I'll also be joined by two members of our Horse and Hound news team to tackle the thorny subject of elite rider exemptions from quarantine when returning from abroad and what strict liability means when it comes to owning horses. We'll also be hearing from vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine, who'll be giving us an insight into degenerative joint disease and arthritis. Most people want to know, if your horse is going to get it, what can I do? You've got to have that chat with your individual vet. No one drug or protocol fits all. So slick on your hoof oil and let's get going. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest this week, the wonderful Louise Bell. Louise is one of this country's most successful showing riders, having won countless major titles, including the Working Hunter title at the Royal International Horse Show 16 times. In 2011, Louise took up dressage with her show horses, and almost a decade later, she has established herself as one of Britain's top Grand Prix riders, competing on Nations Cup teams and on the World Cup circuit in 2019. Louise, hello. Hi, Polly. Lovely to speak to you. And you. And I think that actually might have been the longest introduction of any of our (laughs) dressage guests so far on the podcast. You've had such a busy, successful, varied career and to have reached the top level in two disciplines is quite a feat, especially with the same horse into the blue. Just tell us, first of all, how the switch to dressage actually came about in the first place. I know Horse and Hound did have a bit of a hand in it. Well, Horse and Hound had more than a hand in it, really, because (laughs) when they asked me to do the change of discipline competition all those years ago, that I don't think they or myself had any idea what would come of it. So, and I have to say, if it wasn't for Horse and Hound, I wouldn't be speaking to you about this right now. So, (laughs) um, it's quite amusing how how that started, and I and I went for those lessons back in the day with um, Michael Arberg and. we did the competition and that all went reasonably well and and then I left it for six weeks and I suddenly I suddenly felt empty I was like there's something missing in my life (laughs) unbeknown to me it was dressage (laughs) so um yeah it was um a very interesting time and uh I it, it gave me a new lease of life to be honest it really did so when was it that you actually started to see yourself as a dressage rider? When when did you decide to pursue it as a career? I think I went to Olympia, I think it was actually in 2011, and, and I was watching the Grand Prix. And I, do you know what? I, I've always watched the dressage, but I've never really paid any real attention to it. And, you know, I sat there and I'd already kind of got quite excited about what I was doing. And I suddenly thought, I want to be in there. That's where I need to be. This is my next thing. I'm going to do this. That's it. (laughs) Bye-bye showing. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, last year you competed at Olympia, which I know was, well, obviously a massive dream of yours. Yeah. 
I mean, that journey has been amazing. But going back to the beginning, how difficult actually was it to to make that switch, to, to change up your, your riding techniques? Um, I can honestly say it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. <laughs> it was a matter of, because I wanted to do it so much, I completely almost wiped my brain clean of anything I knew because I had to learn everything again. Now, don't get me wrong, I can ride horses, I can ride any horse more or less, you know, but that wasn't the issue. It was the um, attention to detail about the specific way of, of, of training. So the the scales of training, the discipline you need in yourself and your horse, which with anybody that knows my horse has been the hardest thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it really was. A, it was mind-blowingly, mind-numbingly hard. But um, I knew I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it really well. And the thing is, I, because I'd been very successful at what I was doing, it was something I wasn't playing at it. I wasn't trying to just do it for the sake of doing it. I wanted to do it really well and be at the top of my game in something else. I mean, I never think of it like that. I just do my job and I want to be, you know, seen as doing a really good job. And, and, and the fact that I love doing my job is a, is a benefit. So... And you need a passion, don't you? And my passion Absolutely. is horses. So, um, and I, for me, the dressage is, I just think that you spend so much intimate time with that horse, whether it's in the saddle or in the stable or, you know, grooming or checking the legs or, you know, every little detail, whether you've got the physio, the vet or osteopath, you spend so much time with that horse, talking about that horse and how you ride and train that particular horse. I mean, my horse has always been looked after like kings, but you know what? It's a whole new level. It's yeah. a real new level. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a drug, isn't it? It really is. Anybody that has anything to do with dressage, it's so... I never thought it could be as exciting as it is. Yeah, I, I've actually had a lot of people say that who have come to dressage perhaps yeah. after another discipline or, yeah. or a bit later in, in life. And yeah, it, it does. It is addictive in a, in a way that, yeah. that other disciplines maybe aren't quite so much. Because it's a, it's a perfection thing and not one mm. of us have got 100% yet. So, <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> Always working for something. Self-torture, isn't it? <laughs> Nearly going to get there. Did, did you find that you had to be much fitter and stronger as a rider to do dressage at that yeah. level compared to showing? Yeah, very, even at the lower levels. And that is, you know, funny enough, something that helped me in showing for the dressage, which I did quite a lot of it before I took up dressage, was um, side saddle. So, and I hadn't done side saddle throughout my whole career. I just had one horse that um, was no longer able to do a lot of jumping. So I thought, well, why not? He's beautiful. I want to try and do it. And I did it very successfully, but I only did it for a year. And then I sold him to a friend of mine for a pound <laughs> and she had <laughs> went on because I knew he'd be wonderfully looked after. He was a fantastic Which horse. horse. Was that? He was called Cracker. It was another one that John Whitaker bred, actually. Ah, well, actually, that leads in quite nicely to um, talking about your wonderful top horse now, Into the Blue, otherwise known as Dynamo. <laughs> he features in our Ones to Watch series in this week's issue of the magazine. And, of course, he actually brings another discipline into the mix because he was bred by John Whitaker, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the first time you set eyes on Dynamo and <laughs> how you how you came to bring him home. Um I had a fantastic horse called Man on Fire that John Whitaker bred also. 
Dynamo was his cousin and I lost Man on Fire in tragic circumstances and um, John rang me up and said, look, I might have one for you. If anything, you'll like the colour. So <laughs> I trundle up to Yorkshire, Robert in hand, going, what on earth are you thinking of buying something that's... That's your husband, uh, Robert. Yeah, he was the yeah. three-year-old at the time, you know. He says, what on earth do you want a three-year-old for, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, I turn up and see John and we go down into the back barns and I can honestly say I saw Dynamo, who was... I can only explain as pink. He, he was... He was he wasn't even a. I can't even explain what colour he was. He didn't know what colour he was going to be. So, <laughs> and I just looked into that horse's face and I saw Alfie, which was Man on Fire. And I just, I mean, I'd bought it before I'd even sat on it, you know. But I got on him and he was, he was probably, he was like riding a snake. He was so <laughs> flexible in so many ways. But he had a fantastic walk, a nice trot, and a brilliant canter but he was all over the place never had a set of shoes on had actually been broken and was jumping a small course of fences if you could get to the fence he jumped very well but he was quite wiggly getting to it and I just completely and utterly fell in love with it and Robert thought I'd gone out of my mind <laughs> um, I then met um, Robert Whisker about a week later at Addington in the middle of the night with my groom at the time, Nikki, to go and pick Dynamo up. And we turned up into the uh, stables Why there. Why in the middle of the night? Well, I don't know. They were on their way down. I think okay. they were on their way down to Dover and it just, they said they'd drop it off there. So uh, Not some sort of covert handover. No, no. And um, when I walked into the barn, I said to Nikki, I said, it's the second one on the, on the right there. She went, no, are you kidding me? I went, no, that is Dynamo. She goes, have you lost your goddamn mind. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He's lovely. She said, his bum's twice as high as his withers. His front leg's almost cross. <laughs> just... I know you've got vision, Louise, but, you know, you must have a telescope. Um, anyway, I said, you're just being mean. Honestly, you'll love him. Anyway, the next day, my vet came and saw him and he went, have you lost your mind? Were you starting to wonder if you had lost your mind by this point? No, I always believe, but do you know what I mean? Because he did look a bit of a state because he was, he looked like he was really creep high and he literally was a foot higher behind than in front. But I mean, he was three years old. Mm. Um, I loved him because of how he was bred and his connections and the fact that John told me he was a good horse. So <laughs> I believe <laughs> Always anything. trust John with Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And then I quietly went along with Dynamo. And do you know what? About even within six months, everybody had changed their minds. I'm not surprised. Because he went on to be so successful as a working hunter. You won one of your many titles at Royal International on him when yeah. he was only a five-year-old, I think. That's correct, yeah. And now he's a top dressage horse. How did yeah. he take to the new discipline? <laughs> not very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't great, I have to say. Um, and in the words of Michael Alberg, he said, if you want to do dressage, you're going to need a different horse. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, which was, um, well, I, you know, I didn't have that choice. So, And yeah. I kind of knew, I always knew that he was going to be capable of Grand Prix. I don't know why. I just, he just was a bit like me. I wanted to miss out the middle part. I mean, that's typical me. You know, I just <laughs> want to get there yesterday, but it doesn't work like that, does it? But I, I kind of knew until... There was a moment when I was, think I was still doing medium and I felt like I nearly thought maybe Michael was right because I can't even get around a medium. I can't get past the judge's box. 
He's an idiot. All he wants to do is spook. It's a game to him because he mm -hmm. finds nothing hard. So it's actually going to be some kind of trick to get to get him to do what I know he can do. Mm, to channel his energy. Yeah, and... but he's in the last three months, he is developing into some kind of horse. I mean, even well, I went for a lesson recently with Carl and um, Carl's amazing, as you know, but and he looked at me and just went, game on, Lulu, game on. <laughs> I mean, it's been really exciting the last the last year in particular, hasn't yeah. it, with Dynamo? You've you've had some amazing results. You had a, a double win at the Hickstead International last yeah. year. You were on several Nations Cups teams. You rode at Arken. Yeah, I uh, did. Which must have been a highlight amazing. of last year. <laughs> highlight of my life. Oh, it was the best day ever. And then of course there was Olympia to cap off yeah. to cap off twenty nineteen. What are your plans for, for the rest of this year and, and into next year? What are your plans? Yeah, so we have a few internationals lined up um, from the end of September onwards. So I'm going to, I mean, it's really sad. Stuttgart's been cancelled. So that's another World Cup show cancelled. So I don't know quite what is going to happen. But I will try and get to a few normal CDIs and improve our scores. And you never know. You say in your in the feature about Dynamo that's in this week's magazine that you think he's probably the most spoiled horse in dressage and that he even has <laughs> his own dressing room on your yard. Tell us tell us more about that. <laughs> he does. He does. Well, so I have um uh well, it's kind of like a tack up area, but it's I think he's the only one that seems to stay in it. So and and the thing is it's it's got a solarium above it. So I'm very lucky to have that. And, but what was quite interesting, obviously you don't always want the solarium on. So I thought it would be a great idea to, um, you know, the dressing room lights that you get the big bulbs that you put around a mirror. Well, <laughs> yeah. I actually have these great big poster size frames that have a lot of his um, competition winning rosettes and stuff in there. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get all the other horses to see it so they can think like a winner. That's the idea. <laughs> and I keep telling Dynamo that he has to look at them because we need some more. Um, but anyway, so all round uh, either side of the tack-up box are all these dressing room mirrors. So it literally is his own dressing room. And his twinkly <laughs> lights. He has his twinkly lights. <laughs> oh, bless him. And his basket of carrots. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds as though he is living the high life, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that you've got some exciting younger horses coming up as well, haven't you? Yeah, really exciting. Tell us a little bit about some of the horses that we should all be looking out for in the next couple of years. Okay, so I have a lovely just turned five year old called Zinquazi that is bred and owned by Alison Walton. And he is Farouche's grandson. So he's out of Farouche's daughter by the wonderful Blue Hall Zach. Unfortunately, he's like 27 hands, but <laughs> <laughs> I think he's got to be at least 18 one. Um, but he's not, uh, his body's actually quite normal, okay. uh, as in size. It's just got these legs that, I mean, he's a supermodel. He really is a supermodel. And he's been a very, uh, the reason he hasn't been out last year, because he's been a very tricky horse, very sensitive horse, and was basically wild when he came because he was very difficult to handle i think he'd you know he'd had and and he had a bad castration when he was younger and he got injured i mean it was all a bit of a disaster really <laughs> but he's taken a long time because he's got so much power 
and so much ability that he is taking a long time just to learn how to cope with his own power. But when he gets it, he is, I mean, he's world championship material. He is amazing. Yeah, so how lucky am I to have that to develop? So that's my job to bring that one on. Really um, exciting. Yeah, and he's having a lovely normal life. He's hacking around the farm. He's getting strong at the hills. Uh, he needs no lead to go anywhere. He's very brave and that's also very important for later on in his job. But I think it's very important to have some basic uh, muscle memory from being a normal horse. And mm. he wouldn't have taken to being hammered as a dressage horse. I know in Germany, you know, I'm two years behind uh, according to the way they do it. But this horse I want longevity with. And um, he yeah, could be a serious superstar. And on top of that, I've got my own lovely mare Skyfall that I bred. That's actually, you know, I mean, she's bred to to be a, a working hunter really okay um, but she almost is too quality for that although she's got a big head <laughs> she has got a bit of a napper on her but she is very very talented so i mean she's training at grand prix now she's just turned eight um i've actually only done three shows with her because she was just a bit ugly so i mean she's actually beautiful now <laughs> because her body's developed but she is niece to my great horse rocky years ago ah, so okay. yeah it's all a little bit sentimental but she actually says what do you want i'll give it a go i mean and she's so forward thinking a bit too forward thinking but what a wonderful trait to have absolutely i mean it's really lovely to hear that not only have you got dynamo who is going from strength to strength but you've got these lovely younger horses yeah. coming up as well it's really yeah. really exciting and i've got another little mare um another one that ali bred called graphite blue who is just the most delicious little mare you've ever seen so she'll be coming out and doing some shows soon so yeah wonderful i've just got one more again this goes back to the rocky breeding because it's out of rocky's sister okay um but my very great working hunter mare that i had called working girl had the most incredible foal by utopia and he is called peaky blinder and he is just the most gorgeous creature you've ever seen so whatever he's going to be he's going to be a great horse not sure what he's going to be yet but so that's the most exciting one for oh, me peaky blinder we'll definitely yeah. remember that name <laughs> does he act like a peaky blinder yes <laughs> <laughs> And he is named after my great pug, Dougie. So oh. Dougie by name and Dougie by nature. He's just gorgeous. <laughs> You'll love him. Louise, it's been such a pleasure having you on the Horse and Hand podcast today. Hopefully we will see you out and about at some shows very soon. Thanks, Polly. Yes, we'll be there. So I'm here today with our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hello. How's it going with you, Eleanor, this week? Yeah, not too bad. Um, had an amazing weekend at the British Show Jumping National Championships last weekend. And yeah, just been back to actually got into a show this weekend myself. So that's brilliant. This weekend, just gone that you went to your show or is it this weekend coming up? No, entered for this week uh, in advance with all this being prepared and entering in advance that we have to do now. <laughs> Excellent. So some preparation for your girls this week. Yes, had a lesson on Sunday and didn't ride particularly well. <laughs> But what can you do? I feel like I know that feeling. I went to a combined training show last weekend and I thought I'd done a really nice dressage test and I didn't get a very good mark. So um, I feel like everyone has that experience sometimes where you think it's gone really well and then the judge disagrees and you then are left feeling like you can't ride at all. So I think we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Lucy? What's happening with you? 
Um, I went out event reporting this week, so that was really exciting for the first time since since March actually. I um I opened my diary to write it in and the ruler in my diary was stopped almost as if, you know, time had stopped back in a sort of thirteenth of March week. So it was really, really nice to be back out. I went to Aston Walls and walked the course and watched watched a lot of horses and dodged the rain, but it was it was brilliant actually. So yeah, I had a really good day. Oh, it's great to get out and I'm going to Bergen this week. So Britain's first big international event and competition since the lockdown. So it'll be really interesting to go there and, and see all the good horses for me this week as well. It's great that we're all managing to get out and about a little bit. So turning to serious business this week, we're going to kick off with a topic which is both complicated and controversial. So I'm sorry, Lucy, to, to have to bring this one up. But you've been looking into how riders returning from France are affected by the new self-isolation requirements. Can you give us a quick rundown of what has happened? Yes, absolutely. So it all happened quite quickly, really. So Thursday night, so it would have been about 11 o'clock French time, it was announced that people returning from France to the UK would have to self-isolate for 14 days on their return. And of course, there are exemptions within that. But what made this all quite interesting and confusing, and I do have sympathy for everyone involved trying to work out where, where they stand within this, uh, is we had riders at Harastapan and we had riders at Deauville. There was some big French racing happening this week as well. So there were quite a lot of athletes in there support teams all trying to work out what this what this was going to mean on their return on Sunday night or Monday morning. Mm, so a lot of people in different situations there with with different things happening. If you could run us through what's happening in racing versus what's happening in the Olympic disciplines, because I think it's a little bit different, isn't it? It is. And I think this is certainly where I was getting quite confused. So the Department of Culture, Media and Sport have set out their guidance for elite athletes and cross-border travel. Now, as well as that, each individual sport has its own rules and protocols. So where this was a little bit confusing is racing has said that before that jockeys will have to self-isolate on their return from France or they can choose to have two tests before they go anywhere. So what that meant is that Frankie Tatori was booked to ride in France at the weekend and he was also booked to ride at York, which has got a big race meeting coming up this weekend. And he can't do both. And that is because the testing protocols that racing has decided upon, in addition to the departure of culture, media and sport guidance, means that he he doesn't have enough time between his tests, if that makes sense. And obviously, this is very confusing when you're thinking racing is our sort of closest cousin in terms of all sport and, and where British Equestrian and British Eventing interpreting the rules as well. And they have, if you look at the guidance and you look at their guidance, it is well within what the government is, is suggesting for their elite athletes. But this sort of added another another level of confusion, if that makes sense. And I spent quite a lot of time as well looking at other sports and their protocols. And that was also very confusing because even if you're not, you know, a huge follower of, of sports outside equestrianism, you'll have heard of, you know, cricket teams isolating, F1, you know, how they've been explaining to government about how they can cross borders and things. And there is a lot of that popping up in, in news as well as in sporting news. So it is quite confusing. And that is why it is particularly tricky to understand exactly where our riders, our eventers, our show jumpers are falling within this. Mm. So in racing, testing is mandatory. And our understanding mm. is they have one test as soon as they come back, they wait seven days, they have another test. And if both of those are negative, they can race. So it's essentially yeah. cutting the quarantine down from 14 days to seven with two tests. Completely. In the Olympic disciplines, let me check I've got this right, Lucy. 
We understand that testing is recommended and they are recommending that riders get tested when they come home in a similar way to in racing, but it's not a legal requirement. They can get this exemption without being tested. Yes, that's my understanding of it as well, that they are recommending that it's a good idea, but it is not absolute rule. And again, mm. it's important to understand that the in the DCMS guidance, that it doesn't say in that that you have to have two tests before you go back to competing at your elite sport. But that is another level of uh, rules or requirements that certain sports, including racing, are saying is mandatory. And this is one of those situations where we're really cursing our Monday press day because we go to press on Monday, we come out on Thursday, and actually we are now recording this podcast on Tuesday and something has happened this morning, which is quite a significant development in this story, but obviously we now can't get into the magazine. Lucy, what's the new development this morning? So we heard this morning from the organisers of Burgeon that they've agreed with British Eventing and the small group of riders that had been competing at France last week and were due to be competing at Burgeon this week, that that group of riders will not now be competing up there. Mm, so that's sort of a mutual agreement, as I understand mm. it. And that takes a lot of pressure out of the situation in eventing on this occasion with this announcement. But this situation isn't just about eventing and it's not just about Burgeon and Harris Dupin. It's not just about those two events. It's going to be an ongoing situation. And testing is an interesting part of the exemption. As we've just said, this is a developing situation. You know, the situation with the with, with this morning really illustrates that. But at present, Lucy, we don't actually know how you access testing as a rider if you want to do that voluntary testing, because there is no voluntary testing in this country on request as such. You can't say, I've just come back from France, I want to have a test. Testing is only available on the NHS to people in specific industries or those with symptoms or for a couple of other reasons. So we don't know how riders would access the test, but maybe that information is being given to riders by the governing body. But it's not something we know, is it? No, it's not. And this was something I was trying to find out as well as we were going to print. Exactly as you said, if you look online, it sets out who can get a test and it, including, you know, if you have symptoms or if you work in certain areas and things. And athletes, I can't see them on there. I'm sure there is a way if they're recommending riders are getting tested. I'm sure this is something that they are working on as, as we speak and it'll all become clear. But as you said, it wasn't instantly clear where they were going to be getting these tests from. Mm. And the other thing is that there's this definition of elite athlete, because you can't say I'm going to go ride in a two for three class in France and then come back and get this exemption, can you? Who <laughs> have British Equestrian and British Eventing said they're going to sign off as elite athletes? So yes, this is set out as well. And again, it's not that you fulfill this criteria and you that's that's it you just wave on through it's that there are set criteria that you have to fulfill and then you apply to have an exemption so you know the steps to that as well so what we were given is that uh, exemptions may maybe again and may that's that's the key word there may be awarded to riders on world-class performance program and those selected to represent great britain on a team or at championships now british eventing has also got its discipline specific requirements as well for anyone that maybe doesn't fall under that umbrella and it is classing anyone elite as any rider who's earned their jacket pocket flag within the last four calendar years at any age category or riders who have finished in the top 10 at a five-star FEI competition in the last two calendar years so they can then apply to, for an exemption again it's not that they can just say oh well that's my record I'll come home and crack on it's they need to speak to their to be in the BF about that. 
And two important factors there as well, Lucy. One being that our understanding is this is for British riders and British-based riders who do not have British nationality. So if you're an Australian or a New Zealander or a Swedish rider or whatever based in Britain, you would need to go to your own federation, not to the British federations. That's our understanding, isn't it? Yes, that's my understanding. And as you said, we're recording this on Tuesday. So that is my job today is, is to find out more about how those specific federations, what their advice is to their riders and how that's all working. And the other thing that's important to mention is that these are exemptions being brought in for riders who were in France competing when the quarantine requirement came in. You can't say I'm going to go to France and, and ride now and expect to get an exemption. Yes, that's absolutely right. This is such an emotive subject, Lucy. I saw a Facebook thread last night on which there were over 100 comments and the decision around Burgeon will have taken some of the heat out of the situation. But as I said earlier, it's probably one we're going to have to deal with in the future. It isn't going to go away. And personally, I'm really split on how I feel about this. Morally, I feel that elite athletes I'm not quite sure why they should have an exemption. Why should they be able to continue to earn a living when there will be other people coming back from France who maybe can't go out to work because they have to self-isolate and therefore will lose income? But I also wouldn't blame any rider who used a legal exemption to continue to compete. I don't see that they should be, you know, harassed by their fellow competitors for, for doing something which is perfectly within the rules. But on the other hand, I can also understand the anger of people who are going to an event where there might be riders using that exemption and they might be bringing elderly owners or their parents to those events. and They feel it increases the risk. It's such a tricky situation. What do you think, Lucy? Oh, I agree. It is so tricky. And I really do have full sympathy for everyone trying to negotiate the rules and do the right thing this week, whether that's British eventing, BEF, organisers, riders, because nobody wants to risk anyone else's lives or the sport and yet when you're sort of working within these legal exemptions and looking at the sort of fine detail of them it's hard and it brings up a lot of moral questions and what we've been sort of seeing as well around around the whole pandemic is thinking of others instead of you know just yourself and it's difficult and even if people don't have you know at-risk people on on event sites there's the risk of passing it and nobody would want to do that however minimal the risk so it is very difficult and it has the time frame for all of this has been very very short too and it's interesting also I mean we all saw the news last week with people doing border runs and the situation around that and I think as well if I follow other sports too but even if you're not following those other sports it's been in the mainstream news about how other sports are dealing with this and bubbles and athletes and footballers and cricketers and how their own sport guidance has what that's been like and what repercussions they've had from breaking that sport guidance rather than the DCMS guidance and I think that all feeds into this as well so a lot to take in a lot to process and as I was saying before I do have full sympathy for everyone trying to negotiate this and make the right decision and I think personally from my personal point of view I think the organizers of Burgeon and British Equestrian and British Eventing and the riders their collective decision I, I do applaud that. It's, as you say, a really difficult situation. And I think throughout this pandemic, we've all had to make our own decisions, but also be aware that our decisions knock on to others. And this is such a good example of that. But we can't all also stay at home forever. So we're going to have to be negotiating these questions and tricky situations for a long time, I fear. Thank you very much, Lucy, for all your insight on that. Eleanor, we're going to come over to you now. A really completely different story, nothing to do with coronavirus. You've been looking at a new case that's come up under the Animal Act 1971, lots of legalese. What is the act? What's happening? 
Well, I have got um, some very dense legal language I could bore everyone with. Um, but essentially this, and, and hopefully this is not a situation that will change by the time this comes out or the magazine comes out, but this is just uh, something that has been rearing its head quite a lot. This particular case that we're talking about is a man who was a part owner of a racehorse, so not horsey. He'd seen this horse once in his life on a race course and he gets a call out of the blue to say a work rider had been riding the horse had a fall and sadly suffered very life-changing injuries and the first he heard of it was when you know this claim was put in for 14 million pounds and suddenly he was liable for at least some of that because he was the owner and luckily he had public liability cover as part of his household insurance so it, w it went into the hands of the insurers and it was settled out of court but he wants people to be aware that I think there is some general knowledge among horse owners and, and keepers that public liability is something you should have because if your horse you know even if you're not riding it or doing anything and it gets out of the field and, and causes a car accident you could be liable but it's this thing that if you own a horse it doesn't have to be one that is you are keeping at that time and there's this strict liability rule there are certain exceptions but if if an animal is thought not to be a dangerous species you know there's all this the damages of a kind which the animal unless restrained was likely to cause so uh, and i spoke to a barrister who was an expert in the topic and he said you know most sensible owners know that horses can spook and can bite or kick and that can cause injury. So you are strictly liable as, as the owner of a horse, even if it's not in your care and even if it's breaking out of a field or being ridden by somebody else, you still have a, an element of liability. Is that the sort of bottom line here? Yeah, and so what this what the lawyer said, Louis Weston, is that um, if something happened, the the claimant would might well go for the keeper. So say it was a, a horse on loan, the, the claimant may well go for the keeper first but if say that keeper didn't have any money didn't have any insurance um or as might well happen if it was serious and life-changing injuries because the cost of care can be a lot they might then say well who else can i sue and mm. you would be then liable as the owner so it's mm. just something really to be aware of and especially you know like a 14 million pounds claim there was another case that was mentioned about another um, non-horsey person who had a part share in a racehorse and he lost his home and was declared bankrupt because of one of these claims. It's mm, terrifying, isn't mm. it? So what are the lessons here? What do owners need to do to ensure that they are protected against this sort of thing? Make sure you've got good public liability cover. And if there is a loan agreement, if you've got a horse out on loan, you know, make sure that there isn't, you know, maybe that you've still got that public liability or that the loaner has got it. But also another thing that was um, highlighted, I spoke to a friend of uh, Mr. Linda, who was uh, the man involved in this claim, and she said it had made her think she had a former, she's got a former police horse who she used to loan to another police force to take out on public events. And she suddenly said, well, hold on, what happens if an accident happens when he's out? because I would be liable even though I wasn't the one with the horse and because she couldn't get an answer that she was definitely covered she said well that horse isn't doing those shows again. Thank you Eleanor so we've got a couple of quite serious stories this week that we've been discussing. But we have also got a very cute uh, African wild ass foal on page 12 as well. So that's what you need from Horse and Hound, all your serious <laughs> news and lots of cute falls. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor, for joining us today and Lucy too. And we'll talk to you both soon. Goodbye. 
Thank you. Bye, Pepe. So over to Ricky now with some advice on degenerative joint disease and arthritis. So your horse has gone lame. It's in its mid to late teens. Chances are it probably has a degree of arthritis or what we term degenerative joint disease. Degenerative joint disease encompasses a plethora of little individual conditions. Um, We kind of have it as a bit of an umbrella term. What essentially is it? Well, essentially what you've got is you've got inflammation within the joint. And that inflammation, normally as a result of what we call cytokines and and other little proteins run around and they cause pain and inflammation. They also affect various other things within the joint fluid themselves, which that joint fluid tends to get a little bit more watery in a lot of these joints. And as it becomes more watery, you essentially have bone on bone. I always uh, explain it to people as joint fluid should be like engine oil. It should be really thick and gloopy, really stringy stuff. Um, And sometimes when you pop needles into these joints, it just pours out like water. And no wonder the joint is inflamed because there's nothing helping to lubricate it. DJD is going to cause a loss of performance. Um, It's obviously going to cause pain. And then you, you, you start to question as they get older how it impacts on their quality of life. A lot of our horses are going to get arthritis. There are a couple of little papers out there suggesting that nearly a third of our equine population will end up with some form of degenerative joint disease at some point within their lives. So there's quite a few out there that are going to get it. And don't be surprised if your horse starts to pull up lame when it's in its mid to late teens, it's probably going to have a little bit. So what actually causes all of this? Well, it depends on what type of degenerative joint disease you have. Some have genetic causes, definitely. A lot of them are more to do with kind of nutrition and the type of biomechanics and the type of load that you have on your horse. Significant changes in conformation will put abnormal load on certain joints. That abnormal load over long periods of time will have consequences. And normally that is degenerative joint disease. So increasing amounts of concussion are basically going to push on these conditions and develop arthritis as they get a little bit older. So what do we do when your horse pulls up lame and you're suspicious of something like degenerative joint disease? Um, Coming out or getting your vet out just to do the normal diagnostic lameness workup, essentially. A thorough clinical exam. A lot of these joints have excessive fluid that builds up onto the joint. Doing full lameness assessments with nerve and joint blocks. uh, Trying to localize that lameness as well. X-rays, utilizing this kind of diagnostic imaging in the field is a quick way to assess whether we have any ongoing change within the joint. Ultrasound as well, we can utilize. Uh, And then you go further on where we have processes, what we term scintigraphy or nuclear scintigraphy, like a bone scan. Um, And even surgery or arthroscopic sort of investigations within the joint. So actually going in and having a look. But most people want to know what you actually do about it. If your horse is going to get it, what can I do? Um, I had a classical one where a, a lady this morning, a horse that we know has degenerative joint disease in its coffin joints, um, the lady says, okay, what about joint supplements? Um, joint supplements, I think, is one of those kind of mindfuls that you have to be very careful with. Probably not a lot of evidence out there. There is some, granted, but not a lot of evidence to say that all joint supplements help. They need to be used with a degree of caution. 
with regards to how much effect you're going to get. Uh, there's never a wonder drug out there. You can't just pick up a pot and give it an instantly the DJG is going to improve. So nutraceuticals are definitely one of those that have to be careful with, definitely. Um, hopefully will do no harm. Speak to your individual vet and that with regards to the, the specific product that you're using. And hopefully they will help support joint health. As part of your overall plan of how you're going to manage and potentially treat arthritis, again, speak to your individual vet when when using individual products. Our specific treatments that we have for for DJD are quite varied. Depends very much on what you are treating. So I've tried to kind of clump it together a little bit. The vast majority of people know that uh, a lot of horses have their joints injected. So what are they injected with? Um, it's steroids. So we use a fair amount of steroids in horses. So we use some very mild steroids such as triansimilone acetate, which I would kind of normally expect to get about three to six months worth of, uh, of functional um, working life out of. There are some anabolic steroids out there. Again, a long list of advantages and disadvantages, and particularly as with any steroids with regards to competing. If you go back and look what joint fluid's composed of, it has lots of different things in it. But water, another big component is hyaluronic acid. Um, and the second big component is glycoaminoglycans, or what we call uh, GAGs. So these things, as I say, they're very, there are a lot of other things in joint fluid, but these have big components to it. So we can actually put in hyaluronic acid into joints. It's almost like kind of putting lubricant back into the joint. It's gone very watery. We want to thicken it up to make it more viscous. We can also give horses what we term polysulfated glycoaminoglycan, so PS gags. So the idea with those ones is some of these are intramuscular injections. And there are some studies to show that um, therapeutic levels of these PS gags can get into joints even as short as two hours after injection. Um, even in as recently as in the last year. Uh, now on the market are some very kind of um, primed stem cells that we can put into joints. Um, uh, one product which is in my head at the moment, which hasn't been on the market very long. Um, yes, it does come at expense. However, we do know that stem cells are what we call pluripotent stem cells. So really early cells that can essentially change themselves into anything can potentially be very beneficial to a joint to help repair things now there are very strict protocols to using these things and again they come with a price tag as most things do but it's an alternative it's something that we it's only just coming out onto the market now so we're starting to see how long we're getting out of them you've got to have that chat with your individual vet depending on the joint how big it is means how much you're going to use what condition have you got going in there is it a genetic one such as ocd is it a young animal is it an old animal what's their job going to be? All of these have to come in. No one drug or protocol fits all. Definitely not. So that's why, have a chat with your vet. Plenty of options out there. So good luck treating your DJD. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, we'll be letting Ricky have a bit of a break and introducing a new expert, Supergroom Alan Davies, who works for Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin. He will be sharing his top tips for competing in warm weather. Our guest will be Horse and Hound showing columnist Simon Reynolds. And of course, we'll have all the latest news for you, including from the NAF Five Star Winter Dressage Championships. 
please do rate, review and share the Paws and Ham podcast. It helps us spread the word and it's been so great to see the number of listeners growing with every episode. Thank you for joining us today. Have a good week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.